All right, so tonight we're going to be in Numbers chapter 4. And as we come to Numbers chapter 4, where we left off last week, we just started the book, and the first, it's the census. So chapters 1 and 2 is the census of the 12 tribes of Israel. But remember, Levites, one of the 12 tribes, they're set apart to serve the Lord. And that census was a census to count and for conscription for the draft. Everyone over 20, you're drafted, you're counted for war. So you had to be over 20, a male, and you're going to war. And they did, in fact, go to war. But the Levites were exempt. And because there was 11 tribes with the Levites being exempted, they needed to be in a group of 12. So God takes the tribe of Joseph, subdivides them under his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Thus you have 12 tribes. You have three to the east, the south, the west, and the north. And in the middle of the tribes is where the Levites would be. So now in chapters 3 and 4, we went verse by verse on Tuesday with the census of the Levites. Now, the Levites are subdivided into three categories. So the tribe of Levi, it's the Kohathites, the Marites, and the Gershonites. So Levi, one of the four 12 tribes, subdivided from the three sons of Levi some 400 years prior to this. So Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So every Levite could trace their lineage through back to one of these three tribes. And in the tribe of Kohathites, that's where Aaron and Moses come from. They're Kohathites. They're, Moses, of course, was a Levite as well, as was Miriam, their sister, the prophetess, and then Aaron, the high priest. And Aaron is the high priest with his two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. The other two were struck down, Nadab and Abihu, for the profane fire, which we study in Leviticus. They have great responsibilities. In fact, Eleazar, so Aaron's the high priest and does all the stuff inside the tabernacle. Eleazar, he's the next son in line, He's the general contractor. He's the boss. He's over everything. He's the CEO over all the work of the Levites. And then his brother Ithamar is over the Gershonites and the Merarites and what they do, which is more uh, physical labor than the Kohathites. So the two sons have great responsibilities. And it's, it's almost like you think of a football team, a head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams. Well, you know, Eliezer is like the head coach, and he's over the Kohathites. So it's like he's not just the head coach over everything, but he also runs the offense. Everything that the Kohathites do, he's over. But then his brother Ithamar is like running the defense and the special teams. He's over two other segments of the three. So Eliezer is over everything, plus the Kohathites, and then Ithamar is over the Merarites and the Gershonites. And so they're going to be counted, and that's what we're going to read about tonight, their census their placement, and the individuality of what God had for each one of them. So with that in mind, we pick it up in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. And they're still at Mount Sinai, but they're getting ready to go on the move toward the promised land. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi by their families, by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. So this is our introduction to what takes place in chapter 4. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron to take a census now of the, sub, the three subdivisions of everyone between the men, between the ages, well, they, they would serve between the ages of 30 and 50. So even if they're 49, they still fall in that camp. For at least for a brief season, before they'd age out of what the service was in the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is the central place of worship where God's presence is in the holiest of holies that only Aaron, the high priest, can go into. 
once a year, and then it's a holy place where the showbread and the altar of incense and the lamp that burns bright were all there as well. The priest, the sons of Aaron, are different than the Levites. The priesthood and the Levites are not completely one and the same. They are distinct. And so from, with this background, we also see in verse 22, the same thing is said about the Gershonites. In verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of the Gershon by their father's house, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. And then again, in verse 29, it says, As for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families and by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. So we see in our introduction that 30 to 50 is the sweet spot. It's the window. It's a 20-year run to serve as a Levite in the priesthood. You really have no choice. It's a privilege. I mean, you can see it as an obligation, but really obedience to the Lord is really shouldn't be looked upon as an obligation because we're self-determined. It's a privilege and an opportunity. If Jesus walked by you on the Sea of Galilee and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, that's, if you think that's an obligation, you don't know the heart of God. If you see that as an opportunity, then you drop your nets and you leave your father and you do what he's calling you to do. Or he walks by the tax booth with Matthew, uh, the tax collector, and says the same thing, follow me. That's, you can look at that as like, wow, man, how dare God impose himself on my life and demand full allegiance that I have to walk away from my business and everything I know. Well, you can look at it that way, and that's how some people look at the gospel. Or you can look like, wow, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, is calling me. God in the flesh walked by me and, and said, follow me. And he's looking at me. He's calling me out of the crowd. And so really, when we think about the Levites and their service, God help you if you think it's an obligation. But God encourage you if you understand it's an incredible opportunity. And, you know, the tribes of Asher and Gad and Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, they couldn't do this. It says that the outsider, they'll, they'll be put to death. This is a holy calling. And for 1,500 years from the time of the covenant at Mount Sinai until the time Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose from the grave, this was the way God did things in progressive revelation to humanity through the nation of Israel. 30 to 50 is the sweet spot. We also see something in verse 4 of chapter 4 again. It says, this is the service of the sons of the Koath in the tabernacle of meeting. And then it says later on in verse 24, this is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and carrying. And then again in verse 31, it says, and this is what the, they must carry as their, all their service, speaking of the Morarites. And if we break these verses down in detail, they would give us the distinctions of what they did. So Aaron and his sons, they would go in when the tabernacle would move, because it was up, down, up, down with that tabernacle. They would set it up, then they'd break camp. But the Ark of the Covenant, like you just can't walk in there and cover up the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, if Aaron can go in the Holy of Holies once a year, as the high priest for Yom Kippur. Can you imagine like someone from the Gershonites walking and like, hey, I'm a Levite. I wanna, I wanna pack the, the Ark of the Covenant this time. It's like, no, 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 no. Let alone someone from Judah, like, hey, we're from Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. I wanna pack up the Ark. No, 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 no. It was for Aaron and his son. So they would go in and they would cover the holy things from the holy place, the holy police and the holy place. Once they were covered, then the Kohathites, not the Gershonites and Marites, the Kohathites would come in, and the blue covers would go over these things, and they would all carry. So the holy things were carried with poles. Remember they had the gold poles? 
that they carried these things with. So they would carry them, and it was the presence of the Lord. And when they broke camp, they were the first to go out. So when they were breaking camp, it would start with Aaron and his sons. They go in, cover everything up. Here come the Kohathites. They're going to do their job. Here we go. We're rolling out with all these holy articles from inside the tabernacle. Then the Morarites and the Gershonites would come in, and they would tear down the boards, the, the frame, all this stuff. And really, it was the Morarites that had the heavy lifting, the planks, like all those heavy planks, and they weighed tons. This was tonnage of stuff to move. This is like setting up the U.S. Open, all that scaffolding. You know, they do it for two weeks. They had the forklifts down there. They drive back and forth. This is a lot of stuff. And you can't just set up scaffoldings and all that stuff like the U.S. Open randomly. Everyone has, there's things that need to be done to code with permits a right way so it's safe. So if you and your family are down there on 20 feet up on that scaffolding watching the U.S. Open is surfing, you're safe and it was done to code. Same type of principle. So the Kohathites under Eliezer would get those things when they were completely covered. Then the Moarites and the Gershonites would do the carrying. Later on, God's going to give them carts to help out. He doesn't give any carts to the Kohathites because they don't need them because they carry on the poles. He gives the carts to the Moarites and the Gershonites based upon the need, not equality, but based upon the need and the calling. We'll see that later. Then we see one other element I want to bring out for you. In the midst of this background, which I've covered, and it's all, I'm, I'm summarizing what's in the text. It says in verse 19 that Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and task. So Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar, the high priest, the CEO, assistant CEO, chief operational officers of this entire thing of thousands of people, they're going to appoint each person their task. It's not like volunteerism, like Thanksgiving feast at the homeless shelter where you just kind of show up. They put, I helped out at Skid Row last year. And I showed up, met my friends from Virginia there, and I was on Skid Row, and I wanted to help serve people. And they serve people all, they serve people all day long in Skid Row. They serve the women a lunch from like 2 to 4. And so I got in on that sip. So I showed up. I'm with an affiliated group. They gave me a basic background. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to move the trays, put the gloves on, everything. This is before COVID. We had to, you know, the serving gloves. And I, I got to do something for a couple hours, and all these women, their homeless, came in. I was volunteering. I came out of nowhere, but I was with an affiliated ministry, and they let me serve. And that's not how the tabernacle was. You don't randomly show up and move the food, the, the carts with food on them at the tabernacle. You're a Levite. You're a Kohathite, a Gershonite, a Marite, and you're either under, you're ultimately under Eliezer, but you might be sub, sub under Vice President of Operations, Ithamar, and he's going to tell you exactly what you do. He knows your name on the payroll. He knows exactly what tribe you come from, who your parents are, and he tells you exactly what you're going to do, and this is what you're going to do for the next 20 years. As I say on Tuesday night, so what do you do? You've got planks four, five, six, and seven on the left side of the tabernacle. So whenever that cloud moves and you see Aaron going to work and it's all happening, they're covering, what do you do? I show up and I grab planks four, five, six, and seven. How long do you carry them? Until that cloud stops. Where do you place them? Right where you found them in the order. How long do we do this? For the next 20 years. It is very specific. In fact, 
we get it again. If you look at verse number 32, it says, and you shall assign each man by name the items he must carry. Speaking of the Marites. So again, if you're tearing down the scaffolding at the U.S. Open, it's just not like, hey, you, hey, buddy, hey, pal, over here. Hey, hey, help me with this scaffolding. It's not like that. You've got a name. You've got a job. You're expected to show up. You're expected to do the job, do it right, complete the job, and not go home until the job is done. Well, it's almost like the military. You're not lost in the shuffle. Everyone has a place. And so this chapter really stands out to us. When you think of the context of the Levites, and even where it says that in Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace, not of works, and we are his workmanship. That's so personal, Ephesians 2.10. The Holy Spirit tells us that each one of us in this room, when we give our life to Christ, that we are a unique work of art, specifically made by the Lord for the Lord. I mean, in him all things consist and are held together. It's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. There's an absolute plan for each of our lives. It says in Romans 12, that he's given each one a gift to the blessing of others. So we can say from the shadow of things to come here with the Levites in this book of Numbers and their senses and their duties, we see that there is going to be a destiny and a legacy. Each one of them, until they were 30, were moving toward a destiny of a 20-year window. And when they were 50 and they retired from that service of that capacity, there's still a life to live, and there's purposes of that life. We're going to talk about that tonight. And that's going to be a legacy. So you start out with a destiny from the Lord, and then you finish your journey in this case, a 20-year window, and it's your legacy. My dad was a career Marine. And he could have advanced to colonel, but he didn't like the, I don't think they call it a billet or whatever. He had to kind of swing horizontally into a classification as a Marine to finish his career as a colonel, and he didn't want to do that. He liked, he was always artillery, like he was a captain with artillery in Korea War. He went to Fort Benning, uh, I think it was Fort Bates. No, it was the one in Oklahoma. Um, he learned all the artillery stuff, you know, you know, the wind, all that stuff, all those physics and dynamics of artillery. And he served, of course, in Korean War and, and saw combat and served in Vietnam and saw combat as well. And so he was a Marine for, he got passed over for colonel three times. And the third time was when he was done. And that's when he's like, I'm out. But one of the things they did for him there at Camp Pendleton, they put him as commander in charge of Camp Del Mar, that whole area when you're coming in Oceanside on the right-hand side. He was over all that. So the last six months that my dad was a Marine, he was the boss. I, I, went, I would go there and like, my dad's the boss. This whole area. I was really proud of my dad. And there weren't a lot of people that were proud of Marines in 1975. Fall of Saigon, Vietnam War. It was, it was everyone called my dad a jarhead, but I was proud of my dad. And I went to his graduation. Like when, when Greg McEwen retired from the fire department, incredible experience, three hours that went on at Irvine. Hundreds and hundreds of people, the band, all this stuff. It was incredible. That was his completion of like his 20-year window. My dad's was a full-on parade. I mean, the, you know when the Marine Band comes out? Let me tell you something. If you never heard the Marine Band when they got it going, it's serious stuff. And it was for my dad. I remember that day so clearly between 8th and ninth grade. It was really special. My dad had completed his 22 and a half years in the Marine Corps. I retired from being a surf coach a year and a half ago. I was a surf coach for 20 years. 21 I started with Surfride Board Shop in Oceanside in 1997. I retired 
uh, having been a, become a world champion in 19, as you know, December 17th, 19, excuse me, 2018. And that was my career. Many of you are my age or near my age, and you've had windows of career. Some of you are on the front end of careers. Some of you are trying to figure out what your career is. Some of you are trying to redefine yourself, or as the kids say, rebrand yourself. You're changing brand, right? My kids like, it's all about your brand and how you brand yourself and rebrand yourself. Jeremy Foster, my associate here for so many years, we all love him and miss him so much. Incredible. But four years ago when he bought property in Boise, he was sensing a, a new direction in his life. And while he was a school teacher at Calvary and a sports coach, the soccer team, and the associate pastor here, he went online and took a multiple classes to strengthen himself from what his degree at Oregon State was in civil engineering. He had been out of the game for a long time, and he was in his 40s, mid-40s. He went back to school and studied all the new software and learned all these things. So then when God called him at the beginning of last year to move to Boise and look for jobs, he said it was brutal. Like He said it was so hard to try and get a job at 45 in the industry that he kind of actually is like, he's 10 years behind me, so he'd be 49, that he felt like it all passed him by. But he did, and it was a miracle he got the job he got, and that's the job he has right now in Boise, right now, doing civil engineering. But he prepared himself for it. So he kind of wrapped up his career as a school teacher. He was a school teacher at Calvary Chapel Schools for almost 20 years, combined with what he did as a school teacher in Los Angeles as well. If you're young, I'm coming from your future. We get one life, and we get one window of opportunity to live this life and to fulfill it according to our God-given purposes once you give your life to Christ. Now, you can build your life without Christ and live your life, have your legacy, do whatever. You can open up the obituaries tomorrow, the San Diego Union, LA Times, any paper you want. They'll all be there on Sunday morning electronically and hard print. You can do that, and you can see what that life is. But when you look at obituaries, you can always see the lives of people who love Jesus because they'll let you know. They love Jesus in most cases. So as we think about destiny and legacy, and we think about seasons, drawing from people that we know and love within this church, and as this is the 20-year anniversary of Worship Generation this month right now, 20 years ago, Jeremy Camp was on that flyer, and we called that Worship Generation at Calvary Costa Mesa. Jeremy Camp had his bride-to-be, Melissa Henning Camp, with him, and He felt called to do music ministry. And now look, 20 years later, at the same time, Phil Wickham was 16. He was on the flyer in November. Bobby was already leading worship. Scott Cunningham was leading worship. Joe Henschel, who's here next week, he had a young, he was like 17, had a band called Farewell Down. And now it's all 20 years later. Just like that. So if you want to understand the 20-year window, it goes just like that. 20-year window. Or the 3050 sweet spot. I prefer the 20 year window because I don't want to be done at 50 because I've been done for nine years if I'm done at 50. So let's think about this. This is God's word. This isn't me giving some kind of success seminar or a book on how to be successful in business. This is God's word. This is his template for 1,500 years for the people who would serve him with leading worship between humanity and God. He said 30 to 50 and 20 years. Now, to go to war, we saw that last week, right? To go to war, you don't need to be 30, just 20. And famous generals have said more than once, it's a good thing they're 20 because they're not smart enough to think it through. 
Robert E. Lee said, those young men most eager to go to war are the ones who have never been. Something about 30. So I want to talk about this sweet spot, and I want to talk about being in front of it, in the middle of it, or on the back side of it, because the Word of God in the New Testament gives us insight for this. On this sweet spot, first of all, if you had 20 years in front of you, let's just... Well, it says in Moses' psalm that the days of man are 70 years or by measure of strength, 80 years. So regardless of our age right now, let's just presume for a minute that God's going to give us all 20 years. And let's presume just for the fun of it on this October 10th, 2020, that we are at the threshold of our sweet spot. So we're going to get 20 years. We're going to get 20 years to enter into a destiny and to 20 years from now leave a legacy as... Greg McCune left a legacy with the fire department. As Jeremy Foster left a legacy with all that he did down here for 20 years. As my father left a legacy in service to our country with the United States Marine Corps. That legacy. Let's think about that. If you are on the front end of 30 years, I'm going to quote the wisest man that ever lived apart from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Solomon said, to seek the Lord in your youth before the days grow old and evil and you take no pleasure in them. He's writing at the end of his life. He was the smartest man, the richest man, and the most powerful man. He never had to fight a war because he had the best weapons. His dad fought all those wars, David. Solomon just had so much military might, nobody messed with Solomon. He'd crush you. He was way up on everybody. And at the end of his life, when he lived for his flesh, when he lived for wisdom and knowledge, and you know, he had the PhDs and being smart kind of stuff. End of his life, he said that you should seek the Lord in your youth before the days grow old and evil and you take no pleasure in him. Because as you seek the Lord when you're younger, you set that course and you stay the right course and you get to the finish line and you stayed in your lane and you fulfilled your purposes. But if you reject the Lord in your youth, then the days grow old and evil and you lament that you can't go back and be 15 or 18 or 25 or 35 or 45 or even 55. When you get to the end, you get to the end. I'm doing a Zoom memorial service tomorrow for my father-in-law. That's just how strange 2020 is. I'm doing a Zoom memorial service for my father-in-law tomorrow. There is an end, and David said it best, I go the way of all men. So if you're in the front end of 30, and we have a 20-year window, we have to ask ourselves, because in the front end, you're preparing yourself for the sweet spot. So if we even kind of use the American way, you graduate high school, you go to college, well, Charlie Kirk said so many people go to college to take on debt they can never pay off, to take on degrees they can never use, to have jobs they'll never get. And it's so true. And to be poisoned in many cases in thinking against the Lord. But you know, the American way is like, so I had one of the former surf athletes on the U.S. team send me an email today saying, can you write a letter of recommendation for me to go to college? And I've done that for a couple of athletes that I coached. And they're, they're, they're going, they want to go to pre-med school at Stanford, which is wonderful. God bless them and keep them in the way. So if they're going to be a doctor, that's a journey, right? So you're preparing yourself. She'll be in college at 18 or 19. It'll be at least, you know, 8, 10 years to be a doctor. And then you do your residency. And because I know because my sister-in-law, Sue's a doctor. And she went from being a nurse to a doctor. It's a long process. 
and you kind of become a doctor at 30, right? You don't see too many doctors that are 20, not in America. You, that's how it works. So 30 really is the sweet spot in a lot of ways. And 20 years really is the window in a lot of ways. So if you're in the front end of 30, I want to ask you, are you seeking the Lord in your youth? Are you growing in him every day? Are you seeking him for your will, his will in your life with everything you have? Are you letting him direct your steps, leaning not on your understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways? For a man or a woman, plan their ways, but the Lord directs their steps. Are you inviting him to direct your steps? Interestingly enough, I became, a, I was, became a senior pastor the week before I turned 30, Virginia Beach, during Desert Shield, before it became Desert Storm. How long ago did that seem now? If you're on the front end, Paul tells us, let no one despise your youth, but show yourself to be an example in purity and character and all those things that he lists there in Timothy. So for the young people, that's your goal, is to seek the Lord and to seek his heart and mind to grow in him. So as you come to the sweet spot, you're flourishing in the sweet spot, not floundering. You want to be flourishing in the sweet spot, not floundering. Now, if you're in the 30 to 50 sweet spot, literally on your timeline, which a lot of you are, that is the sweet spot. And that's that window where, you know, you have the balance of strength physically and you're gaining in wisdom. See, there's a, you think you know a lot at 20, but you realize when you're 30, you didn't know half what you thought you knew at 20. So you're gaining wisdom. So to even be in the priesthood at 30, it's a maturity of mental capacities, a maturity of physical strength. It's a maturity of emotions, and it's a spiritual maturity. Think of a Levite, how you are prepared as a family of a Levite for Growing up for 30 years, you watched your mom and dad serve the Lord together in that tabernacle service, and you watched Pop pick up planks 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and what you're a year away, and you're 29, and you know this is your destiny, and it's going to be your legacy. So you start paying attention to the planks, how these guys break it down. You show up now when they break down the stuff. You're 28, but you're already scouting where you're going. That's what you want to do when you're young, and if you're tearing down the planks right now or carrying the things like the Kohathites or the really heavy stuff like the Merarites then do it with everything you got. If you're 30, you do it with everything you got. And if you're 50, finish strong. Finish strong in the sense of the context of what we're talking about here. With everything you got. There is no coups control with the kingdom of God and with the call of God. Dig deep. Find another gear. Ask yourself between 30 and 50, how can I grow in my faith? How can I, and by the way, teaching the Pentateuch verse by verse, I've grown a lot in the word this year. Going through Leviticus verse by verse, teaching it, I I, I grew. I know I've grown. We should all be growing during COVID. We've been talking about that pretty much every week. How can I add to my faith? How can I build my equity as a human being to the benefit of the body of Christ, to the benefit of the kingdom of, of, of God, and to the benefit of people? How can I make myself a better blessing to God his people, and those who reject him. How can I better serve humanity? Can I learn a new language? Can I learn new skills? Can I get certified in certain trade skills as a better way to provide for my family than what I've previously been doing? What can I do to improve my equity spiritually, practically, to the benefit of those I lo- to the benefit of me and my character, to the benefit of those I love and live with, to the benefit of the people I go to church with, and to the benefit of society that I live in? 
What can I do to add equity, which means value, to my life? I didn't set out to add value in 2010 when the Lord said learn Spanish, but I did. I did. And I'm not fluent in Spanish, but I'm very capable in Spanish. And you can drop me in a Spanish-speaking country, country, and I'll I'll do pretty well, and it'll kick in pretty quick. Obviously, the last year, after God sent me to Russia, I've studied Russian history, Russian literature. I've read War and Peace, the Pulitzer Prize book on Peter the Great. I've learned Russian. I can read Russian. And now in the year I have a visa to go to Russia as a pastor, I can't go because of COVID-19. But it hasn't stopped me from preparing me for when I can go, if I ever do get to go. You see, I haven't quit. And I watch Russian movies and TV shows, and I've learned the nuances. And I read about In the Cauldron, so I know the church history of Russia. But really, Peter the Great is like George Washington for over there. About the same time, too, just about six years before George Washington. I've built equity. So the next time I get on a plane that lands in Moscow... I'm going to be a better version of the one Joey Brand that landed a year ago, the same time last year. And when I'm in a room filled with Calvary Chapel pastors, hundreds of people, I'm going to have a better understanding of the world they grew up in, the language they read, the language they speak, and the culture they live in. I'm going to have a better feel for it. I'm building equity. And if I never get to Russia, I'm like David preparing to build the temple. My son Solomon will build it, right? It's never in vain. So I'm asking this right now, particularly 30 to 50, but you can get the principle for that. What are you doing to build your equity for the kingdom of God? Because my motivation in understanding Russian culture, literature, church history, history as a whole, is that I can flourish when God opens that door for me to go to Russia. And I've been pretty brokenhearted about not being able to go because I really thought I was going to be able to go. It's not looking good right now. But I came to a conclusion a few weeks ago that either I can go for the pastor's conference in November by a miracle, and I don't think that's going to happen, or I can go before the visa expires January 23rd, 2021, which is possible but unlikely, or like everyone else, I'm going to get in line in 2021 at some point and try and get a new visa. But I'm not going to quit, and I'm going to keep preparing myself. And I'm even praying about going back to Chile and to Latin American countries if I can go there. Because I have equity and I can do that. You see, this is my heart as I'm reading this. And I hope it's your heart as you're hearing it. What are we doing to build our equity as a human being in character and service for the kingdom of God? To the blessing of our character with the Lord, our pe- the people we love, our people, and the body of Christ where we go, and the greater body of Christ worldwide and humanity as a whole. What, what are we doing? I'm praying for Putin, just like I'm praying for our president. I'm praying for people in Russia in the 85 oblasts, which are like states, like I would pray for governors in this country. Pastor Chuck used to say, you know, if you want to get ready for heaven, act like you're there now. So when you come to church, worship. When you come to church, receive. Be that person that you're going to be of destiny. And I'm applying that to what I think the next chapter is for ministry and missions. But my heart's with Brian McDaniels in Haiti. My heart's with all those pastors, all those people serving the Lord in the Calvary Chapel prayer book that I go through every year. Our funds are with those people. So I ask us, 30 to 50, what are we doing to build equity at this time? So in that 30 to 50, let me just say this. Solomon also said something in Ecclesiastes. 
He said, whatever you put your hand to do, do it with all your heart and enjoy that work and enjoy the wife of your youth if you're married. He said that before he said, seek the Lord when you're young. So moving on from 30 to 50, I would just say, whatever we do, and of course I quote Colossians all the time, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men, giving thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, quoting two different passages from Colossians 3. But Solomon said, do it heartily. God said to the church of Laodicea, which could be the last day's churches, he goes, you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm, and I'm just going to spit you up. We don't want to be spit up by the Lord. We want to, Jesus puts a premium on passion, and we talk about this. Saul was zealous against the church, and when he was saved, he became zealous for the church. But indifference, the rut, the grave, we've been talking about this. Now, 50 to, 50 to 70, that 20-year window, or 50 plus, 50 to 80, 50 to 90. The Bible talks about how gray hair is honorable for those who've grown in wisdom. Now, we're all called to honor people that are older. That the Bible makes that clear. If you're younger, you're called to honor age and respect age because it's humanity and it's the effects of entropy. That is, the whole universe is dying until Christ redeems it. This is a big word for saying we're all dying. We're all under entropy. And we're called to respect the elderly. But as you get closer to being really elderly, you, you tend to respect them even more because you realize I'm not far from that. So when you're my age taking care of elderly parents in their 80s or 90s, you realize, hey, that's Jeremy Camp 20 years ago, and that's Jeremy Camp now, and that's, that's me in 20 years. 59 plus 20 is 79. And <laughs> this 20 went pretty quick, and that, it only goes faster from what I've seen in the human experience, so that's going to go even quicker. So now you say, what do we do past that timeline? When you're past the sweet spot as, as Jeremy Camp, excuse me, as Jeremy Foster's trying to find a job, and they say you're past the sweet spot, like, what do you do? Well, again, you acknowledge the Lord, but you look, so in the front end of 30, you're preparing yourself for the sweet spot. And then 30 to 50, you're in the sweet spot and you're thriving and flourishing. But like a fruit tree that's past its peak, you're on the backside after that. And so you have to ask yourself, what does God have for me? Well, what he has for us is the equipping of the next generation. And that's really what comes in for us. You look at Titus chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit's leading Paul right to the church, he says, the older men, you're an example of being sober and alert and all these things to the younger men. You older women, you train up the younger women. And he gives there an instruction for older women, seven things they can do to equip younger women to be wonderful women of God. When Paul was writing his last letter before he's about to die, he said to Timothy, he said, seek out those men who you can teach the word of God, that they can teach others the word of God. That's, that's a legacy. That's passing on the heritage. And of course, that famous verse from the Proverbs, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, that might be economic, or as Hector Moore would say, and many people say generational wealth, but the real generational wealth is faith. And all you have to do is look at Sissy Graham, that's, you know, Billy's granddaughter, Franklin's daughter, and you see a legacy of faith. I mean, you got Billy Graham... And Graham Watts, Franklin Graham, and then Sissy over here, that's two generations. I'm sure they got reasonable wealth, but they've always lived modestly, but just the faith. See, that's, that's what we're passing on. As I'm on this side, looking at adult children, as old as 30, Hannah's 30, oh, and by the way, how much 
joy and pride do I have to see her teaching the women at Vero Beach online and teaching about not having fear but faith. You can, you can go see her. She's online, Calvary Chapel, Vero Beach. When we lost our first son and then God gave us Hannah, we, we consider Corbin dedicated to the Lord. We dedicate her to the Lord. She's a prophetess. She has literally, she's literally a biblical prophetess. She's always had the word of the Lord. And to see her at 30, married to a pastor, thriving with her gifts, at 30, sweet spot, right? Wow, and how God prepared her that whole journey at Vanguard College, OCC, Calvary Chapel Schools, and there with Nate, thriving and flourishing. That's what we're focused on, is equipping the next generation. My wife's down here tonight teaching the children in this church. She is doing a Zoom service tomorrow, opening statement for her deceased father. That's what she's doing tomorrow. But tonight, she's teaching your children about Jesus. And by the way, speak of building equity, she raised all those kids. She dropped out of college her third year biology major at San Diego State. She dropped out of college for me to become a pastor's wife. We did all those things we did on the East Coast and all that stuff. She went back to work once Luke was at school at Calvary Schools, when Luke was a kindergartner. And she, well, she was a school teacher after we lost our son, Jesse. She taught school for two years at Calvary Christian School at Vista, which no longer exists. Then she raised all those children, and she was a teacher, a real homeschooler in a lot of ways, unofficially. And we were blessed that our kids could go to the Calvary schools, Calvary Chapel and MCA. All four of them graduated from Calvary Chapel High School. Very blessed. But my wife had the opportunity with no child left behind under George Bush, his second term, to go back to college. She went to Hope International and got her degree in psychology to be a teacher. Then in the last couple of years, with a heart for little kids, she got her certification and all of her training for early child development so she could be the director of toddlers at MCA, which she is right now. She built her equity. The ministry she has right now at 54, is, and her birthday was yesterday, a birthday on a Friday at 54, teaching these little kids, first full week that's been normal for her with all that's gone on in our lives, teaching our kids tonight and burying her father tomorrow at 54. But she built her equity. She built her equity as soon as the kids were back in school to get that degree. And she built her equity over the last two years. And now she's talking about what has been her passion for years is speech pathology. Because both our boys had speech impediments. Luke, very severe, actually. For years, we had to take him to public schools once a week for a speech therapy in Costa Mesa. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't. You just don't know what the Lord has. But it's in her heart to do it. Which brings me to kind of summarize in all this when we think about where we're at. So again, if we're over here, we want to pour into and invest. We want to, when we get to the end of our life, we want to have known that we prepared ourselves diligently for all that God had for us in our 20, that 30, 50 window. And when we're on the backside of that 30, 50 window, we want to look back and we want to know we just poured it on, poured it on, and poured it on. Raul Reese, all that he's doing. Greg Laurie, all he's doing. Franklin Graham, all he's doing. And we just keep going. So it's not like we're done at 50. Obviously, we understand that. And I hope, don't leave your night saying, Joey says I'm done at 50. I'm not saying that. But if you follow this template, because this is the word of God. This isn't Joey's notes on how to have a successful life. This is the word of God. And letting the New Testament shed light on it, this is the way it works. 
We prepare ourselves for greatness with the Lord. We let him produce greatness in our life, which obedience is the greatness. And then when we start to slow down and we've lost physical strength, but we hopefully have gained wisdom, we take that wisdom and we just pour it into the next generation. And we pour it into them until we're done. And may you have words of wisdom on your deathbed. Who's ever around you, whoever's ministering to you, whoever's taking care of you, whoever loves you, may you have words of wisdom. And it's interesting, Peter the Great, I just finished the book, the Pulitzer Prize winning book written in the 60s, so it was during the Soviet Union time. It's very interesting, because St. Petersburg is named after Peter the Great, of course, but the Soviets, the communists, they changed the name to, you know, Leningrad, but it's St. Petersburg again, because the Soviets have come and gone, like they always do. They, they rape, loot, pillage, burn, destroy, and then they are replaced. But reading about Peter the Great and all that he did, you know what he wrote on his deathbed? He was dying and he asked for a piece of paper. You know what? This is a true story. It's right there. You know what? The last thing he said is, I give it to, and he dropped the pad and never finished it. Are you kidding me? Peter the Great, the one who brought Russia into the modern world, all that he did, his victories, his wealth. With one generation, he took Russia from like Stone Age to like a superpower. I give it to, don't let that be you. Make sure you give it to who you're giving it to before you step into eternity. Because you don't give it away on the last day. You give it away every day, right up into the last day. We don't need to be writing what we're giving away on our last day. Give it away today. You, for the king, for God for country, for community, for the church. It's our destiny, and we want it to be our legacy. So young people, be encouraged. Middle-aged, be encouraged. And the older people, keep on blazing and going strong. Amen?